to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. High Truths will be bringing you a high-status expert in this episode as we talk about alcohol, the biggest drug of addiction. There are 21.6 million Americans aged 12 and older who have a substance use disorder. Of those, 14.5 million, or 67%, have an alcohol use disorder. People don't always stick to one drug. When I did the death diary research, 80% of people who died died of a combination of drugs. Of the 14.5 million Americans who have an alcohol use disorder, 20% also have a substance use disorder. And going the other way around, Of the 80.3 million people who have an illicit drug disorder, nearly 30% have an alcohol use disorder. So there is overlap in the epidemiology of alcohol and illicit drugs, and there's also overlap in brain circuitry and addiction of all drugs. As an emergency physician, I can testify that every night there is a stream of patients who come in with severe alcohol poisonings. Some suffer from a lifelong, seemingly intractable alcohol use disorder, while others were out celebrating and had too much. Sometimes the situation is very tragic, such as accidents related to alcohol poisoning, deaths from drug drivings, falls, and other injuries. Last night, I treated a 45-year-old man who broke his elbow after a fall. He was black and blue all over from multiple falls. He could not be convinced that he had a problem. I showed him how his head CT showed atrophy of the brain, shriveling of the brain, like a 90-year-old, not a 45-year-old. I made a point that his liver enzymes were elevated from liver damage. I explained that the repeated falls were dangerous. He denied even being drunk, even though his alcohol level was 350. It was really heartbreaking because his brother was there and trying to get him help, but he was just not ready to change. I feel horrible that I failed. He needed an emotional or personal reason to change, not the medical arguments that I was presenting. I pray that he can get some sobriety and think more clearly to be motivated to change. Let's hear our question today from Craig Creed from San Diego. Hi, my name is Craig Creed. I'm from San Diego, California. I work for the Binge Underage Drinking Initiative of San Diego County. My question for you today is, Given all the changes in policy and drinking habits that have occurred during the pandemic, I wondered what do you foresee will be the challenges as we come out of the pandemic uh, regarding alcohol-related issues? I'm especially interested in how the perception of alcohol-related harms might change uh, as we come out of the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Craig, for your question and your important drug prevention work in binge and underage drinking. And I have no less than the leading expert in the entire world on alcohol to answer your question. Dr. George Koob is an internationally recognized expert on alcohol and the neurobiology of alcohol and drug addiction. He's the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA. 
As NIAAA director, Dr. Kub oversees a broad portfolio of alcohol research ranging from basic science to epidemiology, diagnostics, prevention, and treatment. Dr. Kub earned his doctorate in behavioral physiology from John Hopkins University in 1972. He was the director of the Alcohol Research Center at the Scripps Research Institute, conducted research at Walter Reed Army Institute for Research, and at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. He was a postdoctorate fellow at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Kube has offered more than 650 peer-reviewed scientific papers and is co-author of The Neurobiology of Addiction, a comprehensive textbook reviewing the most critical neurobiology of addiction research conducted over the past 50 years. He is the recipient of many prestigious honors throughout the world, including the International Prize in the Field of Neuronal Plasticity, awarded by the La Foundation Ipsen. Dr. Kube's bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Dr. George Kube, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Pleasure. And it's really an honor to have you uh, on our program. Um, the really the, the world leader in issues relating to alcohol for your long career. Um, and uh, uh, Craig Reed had a great question to us about COVID and pandemic challenges and perceptions to harm and alcohol. But first, I want the audience to learn more about you and get um, some background on the issue of alcohol. How did you become the world leading scientists on alcohol? Oh, Oh, that's a really good question. I, I guess my uh, boss at the Salk Institute in um, 1977 uh, decided that there was a dearth of knowledge on the neurobiology of, of alcohol addiction at the time, um, alcohol use disorder. And so he, uh, he applied for and won uh, an alcohol center grant, and I helped in the process and had one of the components. And so that center grant is um, still ongoing. It's uh, currently directed by uh, Dr. Barbara Mason at the Scripps Research Institute. We moved to the Scripps Research Institute, I think it was around 1984. Um, when Floyd retired, Floyd Bloom, my mentor and boss, um, then I took over the center for, I think, um, I think it was 10, 15 years. And then I was recruited to NIH to direct the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. So um, in the mean, in between, we did a great deal of work on alcohol dependence in rodents and identified uh, parts of the brain that are involved in circuits in the brain that are involved in driving the, the uh, compulsive-like consumption uh, in rodents um, associated with dependence. And so um, it, it's been a, a long journey. Uh, it started, my career started in a sense, you know, trying to understand how reward took place. And by moving into the addiction field, I somewhere halfway through my career, I decided that it wasn't reward we should be studying, but um, the opposite of reward, what we, what we call the dark side of, of addiction. And so um, that launched um, a great deal of work that we're currently involved in, um, trying to understand why it's you feel so bad when you're not drinking if you have an alcohol use disorder. Interesting. And um, you you really, you are the pioneer who discovered the whole neurocircuitry and biology of addiction. And uh, 
And when I was studying for my addiction medicine boards, I had to learn that. And it was all your research. <laughs> I think I emailed you and said, Dr. Right. Koob, I'm really having a hard time. <laughs> this is That was like the hardest part for me uh, on the test. Um, but you got me through it. Uh, so it was it was really an honor to to learn the things out of you know the person who discovered that and you discovered that whole pathway of uh, addiction. Can you tell us about that? Well, it, it was um, it, it really what's really interesting is that on the side when I was at the Salk and, and Scripps, I taught at the University of California San Diego large undergraduate classes. Um, I started to do that simply to improve my my uh, speaking skills. But in the end, um, courses were very popular because they were about drugs and the brain. And so um, I started uh, three courses. Well, I, I changed one course and started two other courses. And one of the courses I started was um, called Impulse Control Disorders. And I started to explore the common elements with, between uh, impulse control disorders and compulsive disorders and, and how they relate to addiction. And I discovered that things like pathological gambling, as you well know, has a lot of um, uh, you know, symptoms and presents very similarly to say cocaine addiction or, or amphetamine addiction. And then um, during that period, I started going through the literature and I found that there was a cycle uh, uh, of stages in that were similar um, between all of these different um, both process addictions and and uh, and drug addictions and so that was the evolution of the three-stage cycle which I published um, in in 1997 with Michel Lemoyne my colleague in France and it really came from a con confluence of social psychology and um, self-regulation and uh, uh, neurobiology uh, it, in preclinical studies, but neurobiology of, of humans and imaging studies. And so we started, started to identify global circuits that were involved. And, and now I think it provides a pretty heuristic framework for future research, but also allows us, you know, for from a clinical perspective, you can start thinking about on differential diagnosis. Maybe some people are more bingers and other people are drinking more to cope with stress and others are drinking more to uh, fix their attentional deficit um, because they have ADHD. And, and so, you know, it, it's evolved to be not only useful heuristically for trying to understand the neurobiology, but for trying to understand diagnosis and treatment and even prevention. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that our model is uh, being widely adopted nowadays. Yeah, it's the three stages of addiction, um, and it applies to uh, any drug or gambling problem or any type of addiction. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, and, and there's that classic slide of the brain and the, the, the three different circles and parts of the brain that are involved with that, and then that's you. Um, I have a kind of different question for you. You're the director of NIAAA. Love the name because it, it flows nicely, NIAAA. Um, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And I'm wondering, there's a lot of uh, work now on stigma and on words matter, and it has the word abuse. 
And I'm wondering if that's uh, still relevant, alcohol abuse. Is that still current terminology? No, we no, call no, it we... alcohol use disorder, but we're it, but NIAAA is called alcohol abuse. Yeah, um, we are in the process of, of modifying all the wording that we're using. In fact, we had a meeting about that today with the senior staff of the Institute. Um, unfortunately, though, to change the name of the Institute requires an act of Congress. And so, mm. you know, um, Congress has to make that decision to change our name. But in the process, we'll be changing. We have already, in a sense, purged um, our website and all of our documents from pejorative words like alcoholism, which do convey stigma. So we use the terminology now that the American Society of Addiction Medicine uses of alcohol use disorder. Um, and we follow pretty much the spectrum of, you know, uh, framework that that's illustrated in and utilized by clinicians in the United States from DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Okay. So I, I, yeah. So look, it was an appropriate question. <laughs> um, the website, the NIAAA website is amazing website. I really want to call that out to all our listeners because you have cool interactive tools um, such as a questionnaire like you could take. And it's like, hey, am I an at-risk drinker or not? And you can click on a little things and learn some things. Um, are, can you tell us a little bit about the various tools that are found on the website? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we have links to things like our, our some of our favorite websites that are very useful, um, two of which I, I highlight with every uh, press interview I do. So one is Rethinking Drinking, which tells you about, you know, what is a standard drink and how, you know, what, what effects does it have and and um, and how much alcohol is in it and, and what, are, what are the dietary guidelines for drinking and so on and so forth. Um, and then what to do if you if you want you know, you maybe think you you may want to cut back in your drinking. Um, the the other website, uh, the Treatment Navigator, um, is which is also interactive, is linked to our overall NIAAA website, and there you can find out what is an alcohol use disorder. As we've been talking about the spectrum of an alcohol use disorder, but as you well know, we 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 also illustrate what are the spectrum of treatments for the different you know, the different levels of an alcohol use disorder. What, what do you, what do you look for if you, if you have a mild alcohol use disorder or a loved one that has a mild alcohol use disorder versus a severe alcohol use disorder. And then we have two locators on there where you can actually type in your zip code and uh, find a treatment facility. So one is the SAMHSA Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration web uh, locator. And the other is the Psychology Today locator. So we have a number of things like that. If you're a researcher or you want to work in the alcohol field, there are locations where you can go and find uh, what kind of training we provide, uh, how, how, to, how to proceed with um, writing a grant, if you want to write a grant, um, what is our small business innovative research program, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I can go on and on. But, but I, I'm glad you shouted out for the website because we spent a lot of energy revising our website. And, it, you know, it's a now a living document, so we can change it more, much more readily than the old days. So if anyone has anything they want on our website that's not there, we're, we're happy to accommodate. It is. I, I really, I really like it. I've been on the website and I really like the interactive tools. And I think there's something in it for everybody, you know, from the general public to, to the, the scientist, as you said. And so for our listeners, 
we're talking about drinking. What is, I mean, people enjoy a cocktail with, with dinner. Some people say it's healthy. Where do you find the biggest problem? Does that happen in, you know, college campuses or, or where is, where do you see that the biggest problem and what, what does that mean? What's at risk drinking? Well, as at risk drinking for me is, is drinking any drinking past the dietary guidelines. And that would be, you know, two drinks a day for males and one drink a day for females. And why the difference? Well, the difference is largely a body water distribution and, and females have less body water distribution per body water per kilogram. And so when they drink, they tend to concentrate the alcohol more. And so, you know, and not to mention that in general, females weigh a little less than men and, and so on and so forth. So when that, when, when you do the tables, it, it comes out um, that for the same amount of alcohol, for the same weight, even um, females will tend to get a higher blood alcohol level. But anyway, be that as it may, you know, anything past that, there's a kind of linear increase in problems associated with, with drinking. So, I mean, when you get up to the binge level, 0.08 uh, gram percent, you know, you're, you're talking about um, the likelihood of a DUI and you're probably not, shouldn't be operating any kind of heavy machinery, much less your automobile. And, and then, you know, chronic high drinking past the dietary guidelines produces a, a, a you know, harm to or virtually every organ in your body eventually if it's chronic and, and if it escalates. And so, you know, we're seeing now liver disease and, and you probably know this better than I, I mean, we're seeing liver disease in young women um, that is, you know, never been really seen before. And women have caught up with men in drinking, by the way. Um, and, and in fact, in college campuses now, uh, women are actually drinking more than men in, in some Ooh. cases in the first time in history. And, you know, if you go back 30 or 40 years, it was a big difference. And that difference has been slowly uh, coming together. So I think all of those things are would be considered at-risk drinking. But if you're pregnant, um, if, if you're missing both alleles for aldehyde dehydrogenase, if, um, if you have a family history of severe alcohol use disorder in your family, if um, there are, if you're taking certain medications, at-risk at drinking would be drinking any alcohol. So I think you have to keep in mind, and, and for women, you know, even, even drink, one drink a day conveys a, a, a small but increased risk for breast cancer. So there is, you know, it's, it's something everyone has to weigh, um, you know, yeah, by and large, um, you know, having a, a drink in a social gathering, which is quite frequent in our society, even at medical conferences. I, I don't know any medical conference that doesn't have a, you know, an int introductory, uh, uh, you know, uh, gathering where alcohol is served with possibly the mm -hmm. exception in the American Society of Addiction Medicine. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, so it's a social lubricant, but I think and generally, for most people who drink um, in within the dietary guidelines, there are not no obvious untoward effects. But you can you could even imagine if someone um, is uh, you know has an empty stomach and um, hasn't eaten 
breakfast or lunch and goes to a cocktail hour and has one, even one drink and takes it and bolts it down. I mean, even in that, under those circumstances, there could be, you know, you could fall and hurt yourself, you know, to be mundane that? about it. Yeah, the, and, and you're right. And, and uh, I'd say alcohol is probably the biggest problem that we see in the emergency department. I worked um, last night, which was a few hours ago. And to your point about women who are more percent water than a man for the equal weight. So the same amount of alcohol makes women have our alcohol level higher. But I had a 40-year-old woman and she had probably the stigmata of all the complications of alcohol you could have. She was orange, um, very jaundiced. She had pancreatitis. She had cirrhosis. She had um, biliary thrombus. She was in pain. She had ascites, um, falls. Um, and that's after a recent hospitalization where she had complications of alcohol. And yet that, that urge her neurocircuitry to addiction and to drink again, she came in with, you know, um, intoxicated on alcohol. So even when she knew that this was killing her, she was still in the emergency department with the same problem. It's, it's very sad, but I, you know, with your research, I understand that, that pull uh, of addiction and that, that calls to you and talks to you, even, even though you know it's bad for you. Um, but on the lighter note, I brought a breathalyzer for my daughter when she turned 21 um, this month. Uh, <laughs> they make them really fancy now. They they sync with your app. And, uh, yeah, and no, I've seen them. Right. It's like, whatever you do, please don't end up in the emergency department with vomit in your hair on your 21st birthday. So she she was she was okay. Um, well, actually, we, you know, on that note, on, on a positive note, we've seen about a, in the last 15 years, a, a straight line decline in underage drinking in this country. And um, tongue in cheek, I take credit for it. But actually, you know, I, I didn't do anything for it, up, you know, other than the last seven years when we've been pursuing a lot of work in, in prevention and intervention at the Institute. But, uh, you know, it, it, that, is, that is one of the encouraging um, facts out there. Yeah, and that's important. And, you know, and thanks to you for highlighting the science in a way that the public can understand. And for the all the people out there, and there's not enough of them who work on prevention um, um, to teach that. And, and that just shows that prevention does work when when it's applied right. So that's great. Um, so we talked about definitions of uh, at-risk drinking as far as volume and, and your other medical uh, conditions and medications that even a little bit um, or even a sip could be bad for you. Um, I heard from a spiritual leader that says, you know, drinking to excess is bad, but it's okay to have a little bit of drink to overcome shyness or courage. What do you think about using alcohol to all alter your, you know, emotions in, in that way? That's a slippery slope. I'll yeah. be honest with you. Um, and that's one of the issues that's come up during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, where we are seeing uh, increases in consumption. But more importantly, uh, we now have accumulated quite a number of small studies indicating that about 20 to 40% of individuals are drinking more during the pandemic to cope with stress and the stress of the pandemic and the the dystopia, the social isolation, which of, of course is, is there. 
And, and the problem with drinking to self-medicate, to put it in a bluntly, is that mm-hmm. um, it, it, o- it only works during the ascending limb of the blood alcohol curve. And it only works during that first, um, you know, depending on how much you've drunk and who you are, 30 to 60 minutes. And then it wears off. Um, there's acute tolerance, but even worse, um, you generally feel uh, worse than you did to start with um, when the alcohol wears off. And so it, it kind of comes around and bites you. Uh, and, 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 and so the, your natural tendency is, well, the next time you're in that situation, you'll have two drinks. And then the next time, maybe you'll have four drinks. And so, you know, it, it's okay to, you know, to, to drink alcohol in, in a social situation for as a social lubricant, that's what everybody does. Okay. That's how many thousands or millions of, of contracts have been signed and grants dreamed up and, and people meeting each other on, under those conditions. But you have to keep in mind that, that, you know, it, it, it has, it's limited. You, you only can get so far with one or two drinks um, before then you're, it, there's payback time. And the payback time can be um, worse than what you started with. So that, and, and thank you for saying that because that empowers me to, to maybe go reach out to that person and, and, and copy what you said. Um, so I think it's a social lubricant, right? You, you know, have a toast uh, when you have a, a wedding or any, um, you know, celebration. Do you, do you drink alcohol? Would you have a, a drink? As the yeah, head no, of the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and yeah, Alcoholism. I, I, I occasionally drink. I, um, you know, it's it's not um, something I really obsess about, uh, you know, but I enjoy a glass of wine once in a while. So my daughter-in-law enjoys a glass of wine once in a while, but when she does, she turns red when she drinks it. And um, uh, then she said, oh, well, she bought some drops to put in her wine or trying to change brands because she enjoys it. Can you can you explain what's happening to her and what she can do to overcome that? Or should is she try to just avoid? Is your, does, is your daughter-in-law of, of Asian um, culture? No, no. She is from, she's Russian. Oh, that's interesting. Well, about 30% of 40% of Asian Americans, um, just as an example, um, are missing one of the alleles for aldehyde dehydrogenase. And so if they drink, they get a flush reaction. You, you know all about this. And when you get the flush reaction, it, it can vary depending on the individual from being, you know, kind of a, a headache to, um, you know, this warm feeling moving up your face to, um, to actually be nauseous or throwing up. And, and of course, it's related to how much alcohol you've, you've drunk. And, and if you're missing both alleles, which a very small percentage are, they really can't drink at all because it really is, is pretty toxic. So there is a metabolic interaction. Um, if it's red wine, there are congeners in red wine that may trigger these kind of reactions. A congener is anything but alcohol and water that's in a, in a beverage. Um, I know people that can't drink red wine, but they drink white wine. Others drink red wine. They don't drink white wine. Um, Some people can't drink scotch. I mean, you know, so you hear all these anecdotes and you don't know whether it's uh, got to do with the 
the congeners in the drink or whether they actually have some kind of allergic reaction to those congeners or, or, or what exactly the story is. Um, so I, I really don't know the answer, to the exact answer, but uh, you know, um, there, there may be some genetic, given the, the, back, the background, there may be a, other uh, subgroups of, of human beings that, that have some difference in their metabolizing enzymes. And so, so that, it that, that could, could be, it. it could be that she can't metabolize the alcohol by lack of alcohol dehydrogenase. So she can't break it down and she gets this reaction, or it could be, um, uh, an allergy or interaction to the, one of the conjures in the red wine and these right. drops that people put in the drink to make it easier. Does that work? Or is that voodoo? I, I've never heard of anything that, um, myself, um, okay. I, I don't know any science on that. No. Um, yeah, but you got to understand there's two types of metabolism that could affect this change. One is to block acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, which means that acetaldehyde builds up in your bloodstream and acetaldehyde is a toxin. And so that's what causes the flush reaction. Um, but the other way is you could speed up um, the metabolism. So if you had more activity in alcohol dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase. Remember there are two enzymes. So one breaks down alcohol to acetaldehyde, the other breaks down acetaldehyde to acetic acid. So you can manipulate genetically, you could have differences in both each one of those in effect, you know, a flush-like reaction. Interesting. So um, the other thing I learned from you is the, the importance of um, family history. Like, so you, you talk about the heredity or or genetic aspects of alcoholism. And the way I translate that in clinical practice is I'll ask my patients about a family history of addiction or alcoholism. It's just like if somebody has cancer, I'll ask them if they have a family history of cancer. If they have um, diabetes, I'll ask them, do you have a family history of diabetes? Can you tell us a little bit about the genetic aspects of alcoholism? Yeah, well, um, in some sense, we know a lot. In some sense, we don't know much at all. So you know, what we do know is, as you say, it, 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 it is well known to be have a high heritability of about 60%. And that, that's been pretty well established. Um, you do, anybody who knows individuals who have an alcohol use disorder know that it travels in families. Um, and can usually trace back uh, individuals in the family that have suffered from it. Um, you know, it's twin and adoption studies pretty clearly show that, that, that the 60% is real. Um, um, there's some phenotypes that actually predict, um, alcohol use disorder. One has been studied by Mark Shuckett at the University of California, San Diego now for three generations. And these, uh, he studied the families, um, family history of alcohol use disorder. And then he followed the generations, um, uh, of the original cohort. And what's really, well, I find this fascinating um, work is he shows that there's a low, low response to alcohol in some of these individuals, which means they, they are insensitive to alcohol's intoxication, if you will. And those are the individuals who go on later to have an alcohol use disorder. And so culturally, when you think about it, we have it all wrong in our society. I mean, we extol the person who sidles up to the bar, um, does four or five shots, picks up the dart and hits the bullseye. And me, who's over in the corner, sound asleep after one drink, are not are the nerds, but the hero is the guy or the lady who can hit the bullseye. 
And, and so, um, you know, there's, there's a good bit of interest in, in work going on in these low, low responders to see if we can find out what, what it is that conveys that phenotype. But you can see how a genetic factor can interface with a cultural factor. And, and, and then the bad news is that, you know, we've done a lot of work and only now we're starting to undercover, uh, uncover the genes that are involved. And, and it's gonna be polygenic, it's gonna be multiple genes. Some of the genes that have fallen out as candidates are, are the ones we were talking about, genes related to alcohol dehydrogenase and acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. Others have to do with um, you know, stress neurotransmitters and signaling molecules and cellular structure. Um, and, and these uh, genome-wide association studies require, uh, you know, large numbers of subjects, you know, you're talking optimally sometimes around 100,000. And that's been hard to come by, but there are a number of efforts now underway, some sponsored by NIH, some partnered with NIH, but the Psychiatric uh, Genetics Consortium is starting to accumulate um, uh, genetic material from more and more individuals. Um, the con uh, Consortium on the Genetics of Alcoholism is a, a program that comes out of NIAAA. Um, and, and then now people are using electronic health records and starting to be able to uh, get information where people give uh, you know approval to use their genetic material. So I think there's a hope that um, we're going to start being able to um, not only confirm the genetic component, but understand what genes are are playing a role and how they convey vulnerability or resilience. You know, why are some people resilient to developing alcohol use disorder? And I think that's uh, very interesting research. It sounds complicated. I'm glad I took my board exam before all that was discovered. Um, the, you also taught me about MAT, Medication for Assistant Treatment, and usually people hear that and they think it's just for opioids, but it's really for any, it's a term used for any medication to treat uh, a type of addiction. And so we have MAT for alcohol, not just for opioids um, or for nicotine. Can you, what is MAT for alcohol? So there are three drugs. It's a good question. There are three drugs. One is, the old one is disulfiram, which is antabuse. And it fits with what we've been talking about because antabuse basically blocks acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. And so what it's doing is basically removing both alleles for acetaldehyde dehydrogenase as long as the drug's on board. So if you drink on top of disulfiram, you get sick. And it works quite well, but you have to take it. And that's where the problem comes in. If, if the significant other is standing there with a baseball bat, making sure that you take your pill every morning, then it'll work fine. Um, it's a deterrent. It's still widely it's used. A deterrent. Sorry, yeah, it's still disulfiram is still widely used, but it's basically makes you sick if you drink. Okay, that's the simple lay version. Uh, the, the second drug approved was naltrexone, which is an opioid, a mu opioid antagonist. It tends to block the pleasurable effects of alcohol um, because it's probably blocking. I mean, the hypothesis is that it's blocking the endogenous release of, of, of endorphins that alcohol causes. 
And the, the high associated with alcohol, the intoxication associated with alcohol is thought to be mediated by these endogenous opioids, although it's a bit circular because most of the data that supports that comes from the fact that naltrexone blocks um, uh, drinking. Um, but it, it is uh, useful and particularly in, in uh, individuals who um, are having a hard time um, you know, controlling their, their intake. Um, and it's useful as long as you keep taking the naltrexone. And there's a long-acting version, as you know, called Vivitrol now, which um, uh, with an injection, uh, intramuscular injection, you can um, be protected in a sense for, for several months. And then the third drug um, is a camprosate. And a camprosate is, a, is, a, is, a, is basically calcium homotaurine, actually. It's a taurine derivative. It was developed by a French company. And, and it blocks the, the uh, protracted abstinence symptoms that you see with alcohol. So that, that vague feeling of irritability and uncomfortableness when you've stopped after acute withdrawal and the sleep problems and, and that all, the, all those negative feelings can translate into craving for alcohol and campersate seems to help with blocking that. And, and, and the data are pretty clear that it, that it blocks this, the hyperglutamate surge that you see in the brain associated with um, protracted abstinence from alcohol. And that's been demonstrated in animals and, and humans. So those are the three drugs. I mean, they, they have uh, efficacy. Uh, naltrexone and acamprosate have effect sizes similar to that of uh, serotonin-selective reuptake inhibitors for depression. Um, people don't realize that. And, and so the drugs are not as widely used as they could be. And it would be, you know, it, you know, we, we hope that we'll find some other medications that, that uh, will be um, useful in the same realm. And, and there's a lot of work going on in that regard, but um, there are already um, three medications out there. That's great. And that's, I think, Im important to know that, uh, and I, I, I repeat that education, that there is MAT for, for alcohol and, and other drugs as well. And, um, and there are options that, that um, the medical profession has to use. Uh, just used that last night, as a matter of fact. And, the, um, and those drugs are not addictive. They have no addiction potential, these three drugs, okay? That, that's one right. key element and, that and they're not, and all three of them are never, they're not abused or diverted either. Yeah. Um, so people look at alcohol as the, the you know, greatest drug uh, of abuse in our society. Um, but they also look at it for public health policy. Like, wait a second, alcohol causes all these bad health effects, all these problems. The biggest one of all, more than, you know, cocaine or meth or heroin, probably as of today, more than fentanyl. Um, so, you know, what about the health policy? Should we go back to prohibition? What, it, um, or should we just, you know, live, learn to live with alcohol? And maybe in that case, should we just learn to legalize all type of drugs since alcohol is legal? Well, you know, I always say that alcohol is the addiction that everybody knows about, but nobody wants to talk about. And, and, and you've illustrated all the things that I would have said normally about um, the deleterious and effects of alcohol in our society. It's a big drain on our society. It's a big drain on our healthcare system, as you well know. Um, but we tried prohibition. Um, we tried prohibition for quite some time. It was the 1920s into the 1930s, and it didn't work. 
Okay. I mean, you know, um, people enjoy alcohol. They enjoy it for what we discussed earlier, the social lubricant properties, and they'll find ways to make it or get it or whatever um, if, if there was prohibition. So I, I don't think the answer is going to be prohibition. And I don't know very many people advocating that. Um, but I do think um, that we can do better at educating the public about the deleterious effects, the bad effects of alcohol, that alcohol has to be used within what I would say are the dietary guidelines, um, that, that, that it is a drug. And as the dose of this drug increases, it has a lot of bad effects, as do most drugs, I might add. Um, there aren't a whole lot that you can keep taking the drug up further. I mean, even a, a non-steroidal analgesic can cause bleeding in your stomach if you if you decide mm -hmm. that you've um, you know that that one ibuprofen is good and the, the the whole bottle would be better. So I think you know we have to understand that that alcohol is not only all the things that we know about it, but it's also a drug. And and as the dose goes up, it has um, untoward effects like just about any drug. So I think that you know the issue for me is we need to educate the public about that part, but we also need to treat individuals who are vulnerable to addiction and, and have gotten in trouble with alcohol use disorder. And we need to treat them as early as possible. As you well know, the earlier you intervene with any disease, the, the better the outcome. And we have to do that with addiction. And, you know, um, you've heard him talk, but I, I hear, I, I share Kevin Kuntz's dream that, you know, someday, when you show up in the emergency room, which happened to you yesterday, with someone who has severe alcohol use disorder, that there's a team of individuals that descend on that person to help them, just like there would be a team of individuals to help someone who shows up in the emergency room with a heart attack, because I think it's that serious. Um, and so... They would definitely be busy because that's the that's I'd say half of our volume. I could empty out half my beds in the emergency department if there wasn't an issue of. I, I know uh, I've said that for uh, years. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I mean, when, when my mother, bless her heart, she's long gone. But when my mother was in her 80s and ended up with a number of illnesses, every time I took her to the emergency room, half the people there were were there for alcohol. Yeah, and she inevitably. Uh, we get sick on a Friday or Saturday night, which of course exacerbated the situation. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's, and, and unfortunately things haven't changed. And with the pandemic, uh, when a lot of people didn't want to come to the emergency department because they were afraid, uh, people with mental health and addiction uh, still, still um, came in at the same amount or even more. It was interesting because when I didn't go to the grocery store or anywhere at the beginning of the pandemic, I only went to work and back and stayed away from people. Um, but when I went to the grocery store for the first time, I noticed that they moved all the alcohol displays to the front of the store instead of the back or side <laughs> of the store. And just, I'll, I, this is not an alcohol thing, but I can't help it because when I when we saw marijuana, and just to let people know that every shift I go to the emergency department, I take care of not just alcohol poisoning, but marijuana poisoning. Every shift now yeah. with the high potency, um, we estimate, and I don't know the numbers, but this is the kind of research I'm interested. We have a high percentage of people who are admitted to our mental health wards um, because of uh, of marijuana. And I, I don't think we're we're tracking that or documenting that. So that'll be... That'll be interesting and maybe 
something but, 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 that know, NIH can do. You know, this this begs a question of why are we having so much of a movement toward this kind of overdoing it with drugs, opiates, um, alcohol, we've always had, um, but it's getting worse. I mean, we we are seeing increases in, in the deleterious effects of alcohol. And, and, you know, as I already mentioned, liver disease is moving younger and younger. Uh. Some of these centers are doing transplants in 30 year olds. So, so why is this? And, you know, one of my personal interests is, is this dark side. So the dysphoria that, um, that, um, you know, has been hypothesized to drive the deaths of despair, the work of Angus, um, Deaton and Ann Case, where they've shown that mortality is going up in the United States. And, and they originally focused on white Anglo-Saxons, but it's now been extended by others to all cultural groups. We have an increase in mortality and what's driving that increase in mortality are increases in suicides, increases in liver disease and increases in mental health issues. And, and you know, those are things driven by uh, and, and increases in overdoses. And, and those are driven by um, drugs and alcohol or alcohol and drugs and alcohol in particular, because alcohol hits all three, the suicides, the overdoses, and, and the liver disease and alcohol is, and, and we think this is a gross underestimation, but probably participates in 15 to at least 15 to 20% of opiate overdoses, because as you know, two plus two equals five when it comes to respiratory depression associated with taking an opiate and alcohol together. Yep. We, and we definitely saw that in, in our medical examiner. R rarely do people die from one drug. It's usually a combination and alcohol is definitely involved. So for Craig's question, Craig Creed, um, he said, asking you if uh, given all the drinking patterns that have occurred during the pandemic, and we know that people are drinking more, um, what do you perceive will be the challenges as we come out of the pandemic? And he specifically in the perceptions of alcohol-related harms that might change as we come out of the pandemic. Well, I mean, we're concerned about four things associated with alcohol in the pandemic, just to take a slight step backwards. And, and the four mm -hmm. things are that, as we've discussed, alcohol is a disinhibiting agent. So when you drink and become disinhibited, you're going to be more likely to drop your mask or start shouting or or singing in front of somebody and and actually help you know spread the virus. So that's one. Number number two, there's the the social isolation caused by the necessary physical distancing, and that's going to make you more likely to drink to cope with stress, and and that can also drive perhaps vulnerable individuals to uh, an alcohol use disorder. Um, but but in addition, it it um, you know, it's been at least initially impairing the ability of individuals to continue their treatment for alcohol use disorder. And then the fourth piece is uh, really, we never knew this. I never knew this before the pandemic, but alcohol is much more highly represented in acute respiratory distress syndrome before the pandemic uh, than in a control groups. And so alcohol contributes to lung disease excessive alcohol use. Um, and and so one wonders if individuals who've been drinking to cope with stress and then contract the virus 
are going to be more vulnerable for the pathology of the virus if they're drinking a lot. And so to really answer your question, we're worried about a number of things post-pandemic, one of which is that almost all, all, all catastrophes like Hurricane Katrina or 9-11, there is a tale of increased drinking that continues post-event. Um, post and so I suspect we'll see this increased drinking to cope with stress response that's gonna keep going for some time after the pandemic slowly dissipates. Um, because that's what it looks like it's doing. It's slowly dissipating for the moment. You know, I pray like everybody else, there's a cataclysmic stop, but I don't see that occurring right now when you look at worldwide situation. And, it, and so that's one thing. Um, another may be a, a silver lining to the treatment part is that there's been an explosion in, in um, virtual telehealth and, and telemedicine and so some, and, and people, there'll be some triage of, of, of these kind of virtual um, behavioral therapies that work and those that don't work. And so when we come out of the pandemic, we may actually find that we have some treatments that are gonna be quite useful, particularly for rural populations that are far, far away from a treatment facility or even a physician. And so that's, a, that's one thing that I think, and we're putting, energy in that at NIAAA, we are funding studies of, of virtual medicine and virtual health in regards to treatment and diagnosis of alcohol problems. So those are some of the things that we've been thinking about uh, as residuals. And finally, we know there is this, um, the, the lay term for it is long haulers, but um, you know, there's a post acute uh, syndrome uh, with COVID-19 I think the acronym we're using in NIH now is PASC, but it, 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 to put it in simple terms, it, it best resembles a chronic fatigue syndrome, but it has widely variant manifestations. And some people are still have a kind of inflammatory response that comes on weeks after even a mild infection with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And how is that going to impact on alcohol use disorder? We don't know, but we're we're gearing up to engage in that those studies at NIH as, as part as in our role as an uh, AAA. So I think those are some of the things that I think about when I think about you know what's going to happen post pandemic. Um, you know, other than that, um, you know, I, I hope that people will learn from from this that using alcohol to cope with stress is 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 not an effective mechanism of dealing with stress and that there are other ways that you can um, address stress. And, and, and I think many people during the pandemic are having to be very creative about how they reduce their, their stress and maintain their mental health. And hopefully some of that will carry on as well. That's another silver lining piece. And then finally, before the pandemic hit, there has been a burgeoning, particularly in young people, a burgeoning interest in what they, you know, these, these uh, modifiers, a uh, modification of how we look at alcohol. So there've been dry January individual, uh, you know, programs and sober curious and dry bars and places you can go and socialize where you don't necessarily have to drink or feel required to drink. And it's okay to just have a mocktail instead of a cocktail. And I think uh, some of this will evolve also after the pandemic.
That's great. And I think that's a very comprehensive answer to Craig Creed's uh, um, question. So I want to say thank you to Craig for your smart question and thinking ahead about post-pandemic alcohol challenges. And I think we have our work cut out for us. And I really thank you, Craig, for your work with youth and prevention. It's much better to prevent a problem before it starts, just like Dr. Koob said, like there are other ways of of coping with uh, st- stress or strains be- besides having to, to self-medicate with alcohol. And Dr. George Koob, what an absolute treat and honor to have you join us on High Truths and teach our audience on the science of alcohol uh, and prevention. May you have lots of health and energy as you continue to lead our nation as a director of NIAAA uh, and promoting health to our nation. Well, thank you, Ronnie. It's been a real pleasure and great to see you again. And I'm great to see you um, healthy and, and, and I really salute your your, your work because um, you're right in the trenches and and it, it's really great to have good people in the trenches who really care. So, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, This is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.